Welcome to the Story Walk, a podcast by storytellers for storytellers. And we hope that means you. Whether you identify as a storyteller with a capital S, or if you just like to tell stories in your work, say as a teacher, librarian, counsellor or community leader. And not forgetting, if you're a parent or a grandparent looking to share stories and values with your family. And since the Story Walk is presented by FEAST, the Federation of Asian Storytellers, our focus is on sharing Asian stories and celebrating tellers from the Philippines in the East to Turkey in the West and countless storytelling communities that lie in between. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are. Welcome to episode 6 of Story Walk. This is Shireen Saif joining you from Dubai alongside my co-host Rituparna Ghosh from India. Salam, namaste. Hello, it's so good to be back as the Story Walk co-host after 6 months. Back in November 2020 when I first suggested this wild idea of producing a feast podcast, I had no inkling that we would gather up as producers and see through six amazing episodes. We are now looking forward to onboarding a new team of producers and I'm excited to listen to some new voices in this podcast. Meanwhile, there is a lot that we have lined up in this episode. So Shireen, why don't you tell everyone what's cooking in our story walk? This one's literally a feast, featuring three stories cherry-picked from Food Tales from Asia the first book from the Feast Anthology series. In Andre, we have a double interview with Roger Jenkins and Suiyan talking about the storytelling scene in Singapore. Tadka, our story clinic, features tips from master storyteller Jeff Gear on Zoom telling. And in Pantry, us podcast producers chat about the many connections between food and stories. Whew. Yes, we have quite a lineup. Let's get started with a warm miso of a tale from Bali, retold by Indonesian storyteller Aryo Zidni. Co-founder of Ayo Donggeng Indonesia and the initiator of Indonesia International Storytelling Festival, Aryo is a storyteller and children's story writer who believes storytelling is a passion to share. Indonesia, as we know, has been battling a severe war with COVID-19 lately. And we would like to tell all our storyteller friends in the country that we have you in our thoughts and prayers. So thank you, Aryo, for seeing through the storm and sending us your story in time for the episode. And from what I know, Aryo is very drawn to the social healing aspect of storytelling and has done some great work in post-disaster programs in Indonesia. So let's settle down and listen to his story. There was a good farmer called Father Pauling. He took good care of his rice fields, and because of that, he always had a good crop of rice. One morning, he worked very hard plowing his rice fields with his buffaloes. At noon, 
When the sun was high in the sky, Father Poleng sat down to take a rest and have his lunch. While he was eating, an ant crawled up and ate some of his rice. Poleng got angry, and without thinking, he cursed the ant. Then a voice from heaven spoke, Father Poleng, do not refuse those who ask, even an ant, a creature who cannot grow rice, is worthy of help. Father Poling thought about it and realized that people and creatures of all kinds who need rice deserve to be helped. And with a pure heart, he gave his rice to the end. Then he went back to work, hungry but contented. After that, every day, Father Poling gave rice freely to anyone or any animals who needed it. One night, Father Poling was sleeping alone in his hut in the rice fields. The god Indra descended in all his glory, adorned in beautiful shiny jewels. Father Poling woke up startled when he saw the bright light burning over his hut. A voice said, Father Poling, do not be frightened. I am Indra who spoke to you when you cursed the ant. I noticed your act of charity in giving the ant rice and going hungry yourself. I have now come to reward you and take you to heaven. Father Poling, after writing a letter to his family, went with Indra to heaven. The next morning, Father Poling's son, called Yang Poling, arrived at the hut, only to find his father gone. He looked for him in the rice fields. Without success, Yang Poleng went home to urge his relatives to join in the search for his father. They searched all the streams and fields, but did not find him. Then, thinking that he might have returned home in the meantime, they all went back to the hut. There they noticed the letter which read, I, your father, have left you and will not return. I have been taken by the god Indra to heaven. After young Poling had read the letter, everyone looked at it. True enough, it was Father Poling's handwriting. Young Poling and his relatives were happy Father Poling had gone to heaven. Day after day, young Poling continued his father's work in the fields. Young Poling was also a good farmer taking good care of the rice fields. Several days later, young Poling thought to himself, Now that Father Poling is in heaven, we must burn the bones of Grandfather Poling so that he too can go to heaven. In Bali, people follow the Hindu practice of burning the dead to free the soul so it can fly to heaven. This is called Ngaben. Young Poleng asked the priest to pick a suitable day and told him that he wanted to hold a large ngaben ceremony fit for a king. But the priest said, No, it is wrong for you to hold such a grand ceremony. The Polengs are ordinary and humble people, not kings. Then Young Poleng said, Never mind, if the gods are offended, I'll bear all the responsibility. When the day arrived, the bones of Grandfather Poling were cremated like those of a king. 
with a royal cremation tower and his best clothes. Later around midnight, young Poleng went by himself to the graveyard carrying an offering to the god of death. Soon, there appeared a tall man with a long beard who was beating an old man with a large stick. The old man groaned in pain as the stick came down upon his back. When he saw that the old man being beaten was the spirit of his dead grandfather, young Pauling became very angry. He went up to the tall man and pulled hard at his beard. The tall man was startled, and looking down, he said, Who are you? What are you doing here? How dare you pull my beard? I am the grandson of the old man you are beating, answered young Pauling. What has my grandfather done that he should be beaten? I am Jogormanik, said the tall man. I hold power over all spirits. I also decide who goes to heaven and who goes to hell. The reason your father is being beaten is because you held an elaborate and royal Ngaben cremation ceremony, which you should not have. It is only right that your grandfather be sent to hell. No, cried young Pauling. If my grandfather is to be sent to hell, it must be with God's Indra's permission. Then, said Jogormanik, let us go to heaven. So the three of them traveled to heaven. When they arrived, young Pauling found his father, Father Pauling, and explained the whole matter to him. Father Poleng then went before the god Indra and asked that his father not be sent to hell. Jogormanik, said Indra, it is not right for you to punish the spirit of Grandfather Poleng, because Father Poleng and Young Poleng have done many good deeds. They are good farmer. I invite Grandfather Poleng's spirit to live here together with Father Poleng. You, young Paling, may return to the world. I grant you every happiness. But remember, always do what is good, so that when you die, your spirit may come here to be with your father and grandfather. Then, young Paling arrived home and told his family, relatives, and fellow villagers all about his journey to heaven. Young Pauling was loved and respected by everyone, for he was the only one among the living who had visited heaven. Young Pauling, the good farmer, who always took very good care of the rice fields and produced a good crop of rice. Our story reminds me of another Indonesian tale, this one from Java. It is the story of the goddess of rice and how a farmer steals rice from heaven to grow it on earth. I used it recently while showcasing how a story can be used to teach agriculture in a classroom. And yes, that's a fascinating food tale too.
Mm, time to tuck into the main course of today's episode as we travel to Feast's home country, Singapore, and quiz two prominent tellers who have seen the rise of storytelling over the last 20 years. Singapore is the center of the storytelling movement in Asia. It is also home to Feast, the Federation of Asian Storytellers, who are, as we speak, in the thick of preparing for the International Storytelling Festival, Feast Fest in October. It is for these reasons and more that Singapore is our country focus for this episode of Storywork. Joining us are two prominent figures from Singapore's storytelling scene. Our very own Roger Jenkins, co-founder and director of Feast, and Suyen, president of the Storytelling Association. So lovely to have you both here. Singapore stands apart as an exemplar country that has strongly integrated storytelling in education, arts, and business. As veteran tellers, could you highlight some of the main triggers that led to its growth in Singapore? Roger, I'll start with you. Well, of course, we're speaking about English storytelling in Singapore, but it's important to remember that storytelling in Cantonese, for example, goes much further back and in the 1960s was hugely popular on radio, thanks to Lee Saidor, who was a wonderful teller. And I have a, a photograph of a storyteller on a bridge over the Singapore River in 1964, telling by uh, an, the light of an oil lamp and using a joystick uh, as it burnt down. And this is how he timed the episodes of his epic. And when he got to the bottom of the joystick, then you had to pay a couple more cents and he would light another one and begin the next episode. It wasn't until 1998-99 that the Book Council here launched what was called then the Asian Congress of Storytelling and it morphed into the International Storytelling Festival. And very wisely, not knowing anything about storytelling, they went to uh, Shilui and Kiran Shah and said, look, who should we invite? And as a result, over the next uh, nine, ten years or so, which were really the, the heyday of that festival, we really were blessed with having the cream of storytelling from America and UK. And it was a wonderful time for us to begin our storytelling journey. Because, you know, Singapore being relatively small, the, the festival was very intimate and one could actually not only, you know, be on the same platform as these hugely experienced and wonderful performance tellers, but also one had the chance to kind of buttonhole them during coffee breaks and, uh, and pick their brains and get inspired by them. And Sui, and what is your perspective on how it all began? Roger mentioned Kieran and Sheila being key in helping with the storytelling movement. It was around that time that the Storytelling Association of Singapore was formed. There was a group of 11 tellers passionate about storytelling. I was teaching in a secondary school full-time. I met Sheila, Kieran and Rosemary and was invited to storytelling swaps. The tellers were very warm. I remember then attending workshops by overseas tellers like Kathy Spagnoli, the director of the book council, Mr. Ramachandran. He believed in storytelling and he encouraged this new development. So it was the passion of the local storytellers, the support of the book council, as well as the storytellers from overseas that led to the growth of storytelling here. I think a key factor has been the role of the National Arts Council, which in the mid-1990s created what they call the Arts Education Programme to promote 
arts education in schools and it's pumped a huge amount of money into schools for them to bring in artists as performers or as teachers or of course to bring the kids out to see performances and this has really enabled storytellers to hone their craft in front of often very large audiences one has to say but of course in the process you are introducing huge numbers of young people to storytelling as an art form and hopefully as they grow up they're going to remember and they will introduce their children and also want to come and see performances as they grow older. It's very exciting to hear the early year story of storytelling in Singapore. And I'm beginning to wonder that it's taken about 20 years for storytelling to grow in your country. And looking from outside, you know, I have seen and witnessed so much that has happened in Singapore. I remember traveling to Singapore in 2014 and writing to Sheila on Facebook that, can I meet you? Because I want to know about <laughs> storytelling in Singapore. There's so much happening and I'm a storyteller in India and there's hardly anything happening in the country. So just to put that, you know, that, that growth story in perspective, I see there's a lot of diversity in, in the application of storytelling in your country, in Singapore. And storytellers seem to have access to much more opportunities than just festivals and telling in schools. And Svien, you bring museum artifacts to life with your stories. We heard you at the museum panel and amazing stuff happening. I was so thrilled. Tell us a little more about all these opportunities that there are in Singapore and how did you go about carving them out for yourself and for the community there. The museums here appreciate the effectiveness of storytelling to highlight artifacts. It is wonderful to use intangible oral heritage to highlight the tangible heritage in a museum. And like Roger said, the National Arts Council here promotes arts practitioners. They recognize oral storytellers as artists and they support storytelling programs financially. Not too long ago, I collaborated with a few storytellers on a project for senior citizens. And since then, every year, I've carried out similar projects to engage senior citizens with storytelling activities for reminiscence and to improve their mental health. Roger, you have carved a niche for yourself as an audio describer, making performances accessible for visually impaired and yeah, thank you for mentioning the access. This is something that I've always been concerned about and I'm delighted to have seen how attitudes have changed here in Singapore over the past 40 years that I've been here. And I was encouraged to take the audio description training a couple of years ago by Cassandra Y, who some of you may have come across, a wonderful storyteller from UK. And her father was blind, so Cassandra basically grew up audio describing for him. And she said to me that, you know, it's what has made her the very vivid and engaging and precise storyteller that she is. And so part of my thinking was, apart from the fact that I believe in the importance of making our society more accessible to people, is that also my own storytelling would benefit from being able to describe things more concisely and precisely. Thank you for sharing that. Clearly, there's a lot to learn from Singapore, especially given that the country developed a professional storytelling scene over the last 20 years, as both of you have highlighted. So let me round off by asking you to share, say, three ideas or best practices that feast countries can borrow from the Singapore storytelling model. 
gosh, three things. Okay, first of all, the sense of collaboration. As Sui Yen said earlier, the Storytelling Association began very early on in 2005, 2006, because we realized that we would be much stronger together than trying to work independently. And that sense of collaboration has continued to the present day. And only last year, uh, seven of us got together and set up the Story Stream as a pay-per-view website, realizing that seven people putting submitting stories to this and creating a very large catalog would be much more attractive to a potential audience. And secondly, Singapore is very small. And therefore, all the time we are in competition. When people put out a request for a storyteller, it's quite likely that they are going to be going to all the usual suspects. And as a result, you know, Sui Yen's worked for me, I've worked for Sui Yen. This is just the nature of the beast. And we're far better working together and sharing and recognizing that it's not a, a dog-eat-dog world. The widespread belief is that the more people who come to a storytelling event and enjoy it are going to go away and thinking, oh, I'd like to go and listen to another storytelling event. And so that the more storytellers that are doing good work, then it really grows the market for everybody. And so thirdly then, uh, respecting the people in the same field as you and not trying to do them down, not trying to go behind their back, but acknowledging and requesting for, you know, when you hear a good story, you say, gosh, that's really good. I'd like to tell it and getting that permission. These kind of things are a tenet that's become very important to most of us here in Singapore. I agree with what Roger has said about the collaborative culture that we have here. The second factor I feel that's important is the willingness to share amongst the storytellers. When I first started telling stories, I was very attracted to that sharing culture. A good storyteller would have that heart to share. The third factor is to get support from government agencies. Sometimes we have to convince them by showing them what we do. i give you an example. I was once engaged by our local community organization to tell a five-minute story at a dinner. And there were corporate heads, community leaders, and a few ministers there. And my story had to be short, so I decided to tell a finger story where everyone had to copy me. Now, the person in charge was very concerned that the audience would not be able to follow me. I insisted that if children could learn a short finger story, so could adults. So I got everyone in the audience repeating after me and doing the actions. They had a great time. I didn't get paid much for that gig, but I had a lot of publicity that day. Collaboration. Thank you, Suyen and Roger, for that wonderful nugget of advice. Now, that's such a simple recipe for storytellers to follow. Thanks to Feast, Fest has already brought us storytellers closer as we are now busy collaborating to create stories for the upcoming festival in October. Moving on, our next story is from Srividya Venkat. Srividya has been pursuing the art of storytelling in Singapore since 2015. She's a volunteer at local libraries and the Children's Cancer Foundation. She is also the author of eight children's picture books, including The Clever Tailor, 
which was inspired by a European folktale. Hmm, and what I find most fascinating is her picture book, The Clever Tailor, and about how she often wishes that wearing wings could make her fly and that houses were made with books and not bricks. Imagine how wonderful that would be. For now, we're going to listen to her tell a story from India about a laddu and a very silly old couple who took competition a little too far. Once there lived an old couple in a village in India. They didn't like to spend money on anything, not even on essential things like food, clothing and house repairs. That's how miserly they were. One day, their neighbor brought over sweets, Besan Laddu, the old man's favorite. The old couple could hardly believe their luck. They were getting them for free. After a quick, measly dinner of stale rice, they sat down to enjoy the besan laddu, relishing every lick and every bite. Mm. For several days after that, the old man talked about nothing else but how delicious those besan laddus had been. One day, he asked his wife to make a few. If you want laddus, we'll have to spend money, she said. Of course, I know that, said the old man. Just make four laddus, no more. The old woman made a list of ingredients needed to make the laddus. And the old man bought just enough to make the small quantity. That afternoon, the old woman began to make the laddus. The aroma of the melted ghee and roasted besan flour wafted all through their house, making the old man drool. He could hardly wait to eat the laddus. Finally, the laddus were ready. When he saw the box of laddus, he let out a cry. Hey wife, why did you make five laddus? I told you to make only four, two for each of us. Well, you got enough ingredients for five, so I made five. But now who will eat the fifth one? I'll take it, since I'm the one who made them. That's ridiculous. Since it was my idea to make the laddus, I'll take the fifth laddu. Why don't we break the fifth laddu in half and share it? Are you crazy? Don't you know it is not easy to break a besan laddu into two equal parts? If the flour mixture breaks loose, the entire laddu could crumble. Oh, I never thought of that, husband. What shall we do then? The two pondered for a while. I have an idea, said the old man. Let's play a game. The winner will get 
three laddus. The loser will get two. Fair enough, said the old woman. What shall we play? The old man smiled to himself. He knew what kind of game would be easy to win against his wife. It is a game where no one speaks. Whoever speaks first is the loser. The winner will get three laddus. At first, the old woman hesitated. But then she agreed. And the game began. Both the old man and the old woman did not speak the rest of the day and the next and the day after that. It was hard for the old woman not to speak, but she was as determined as her husband to win that fifth and last laddu. Day after day passed. The game went on. Finally, when each of them saw no sign of the other giving up, they began to do things to annoy each other. The old man burped loudly, ignored his chores and even spat out the food cooked by the old woman. Each time the old woman opened her mouth to complain. But she remembered that the game was still on. She too tried to annoy her husband. She stained his best shirt with turmeric, added an extra spoon of chili powder to his food and didn't do her chores. Each time the old man opened his mouth to complain, he reminded himself that the game was still on. Neither of them was ready to give in for the sake of that last laddu. One day, their neighbor came to visit. She hadn't seen or heard from the old couple in a long time and she was worried. She knocked on the door. No answer. Uncle? Auntie? No. No answer when she called out to them. She banged on their door. Still no answer. Anxious, she ran for help and returned with a few villagers. One of them climbed up the roof of the old couple's hut and peered in through a gap. He saw the old couple lying on the floor with their eyes closed. In reality, tired of their game, the old couple were taking a nap. But to the villager on the roof, it looked like something else. Oh no, they're dead! There was an uproar following which the villagers broke open the door and made their way inside the hut. Because the old couple had no family, the villagers began to discuss funeral arrangements. The old man and the old woman were still so stubborn, they did not get up. Just for the sake of a laddu. Meanwhile, the neighbors carried the old couple to the banks of the river. Following Hindu tradition, they placed the old couple on a pyre and the priest began to chant ceremonial mantras. When the pyre was lit, 
the logs caught fire and the flames began to rise. Now the old man was dressed in a dhoti cloth which has only one layer, while the old woman was dressed in a sari with an underskirt. As the flame got closer, they felt hot, then hotter. Soon it was too hot for the old man to bear. He jumped off the tower, shouting, I give up! The old woman was glad to jump off the pyre too. I win! The villagers who had been standing around the funeral pyre were terrified to see the old couple come alive. They ran for their lives, thinking they had seen ghosts. As for the old couple, all they could think of was the laddu. So they hurried home, back into their hut through the broken front door. There they found the box of laddus lying on the floor, empty. And next to it stood a stray dog licking up the crumbs of the last laddu. lots of Indian tales where couples feud over food. I guess that's a very Indian thing to do. For those of you who like food tales, look up this story called Duma Dume. You will find it in A.K. Ramanujan's collection of folk tales. It's readily available on the internet and on my podcast too. Welcome to Tarka. The Story Clinic segment of StoryWalk, where we will have some of your questions answered by storytelling experts. Today, we have with us a master storyteller from Hawaii, who blends his talents as a painter, puppeteer, mime artist and theatre director into storytelling to create unforgettable experiences. The man who becomes his stories. Yes, welcome, Jeff Gear. Well, hello, Feast. Hello, Jeff. You're fresh from doing 36 live storytelling shows for kids. And you've also successfully launched your Rock the Zoom workshop. So on the back of all that experience, our question is, how can you make performances compelling in the two-dimensional format of Zoom? Zoom forced three dimensions, height, width, and depth of storytelling into a box. The flat screen, two dimensions, though it does show depth, and I hope you use it. Both the three-dimensional live show and the two-dimensional Zoom telling of the tale work or don't based on the ability of the teller to create images in the fourth dimension, which is inside the mind's eye of the listener. Does magic happen in Zoom, the two-dimensional screen? Yes, I think it's pretty safe to say that over this last COVID year, each of us has had a profound fourth-dimensional story dreaming experience via Zoom. But the question is, how was it achieved? I think it's the same qualities that lead to mesmerizing people in a live show that work on the Magic Zoom, too. Of course, you have a simple background, you use good lights, you use a working mic, you comb your hair, you shave, you wear an evocative shirt. That's all required. That's all normal. But that does not assure you that you're going to create magic in the fourth dimensional mind of the listener. None of that stuff matters for letting the fourth dimension open up. We've all been in bad Zoom shows where we bored to tears and suddenly somebody tells a story, the bottom drops out, our jaw drops open, and we are on the edge of tears. 
How? What builds that magic? Is it the words? Well, for some it is. Is it the active movements? Is it the tale? I'd say it takes both, a great story and a great performer. Perhaps it's the inner life, the conviction, the inner power, both the commitment and the preparation, the passion of the teller, the fire within that goes through the screen or into the audience live. Would you say that does it? Oh, I think so. But Jeff, how would you cultivate that fire, that, that passion that you're talking about? How do you cultivate that? I would suggest, oh listener, that you take yourself seriously as an artist and demand that you work and work and work to get better at your craft. I ask you, what are your passions? What inspires you? Storytelling is certainly your interest, your passion. That's why you're listening to this podcast. So go ahead. Tell. Tell and tell and tell and tell and tell and tell and tell until it tells you and you find your voice. Develop a process for creating stories. Mine is verbal instead of written, so I talk my tales through in front of people, large groups, small groups, or no groups. I talk privately. I talk constantly. I talk all the time. I'm always telling stories. So I shape that emotional roller coaster of the narrative based on the feedback of live listeners. That's how I shape my stories. No, not the talk that comes later or the chat room. That was wonderful. You're really good. I like your facial expressions. No, I base it on the feedback that comes instantly from the audience. Okay, but what about when you're on Zoom and you can't really sense the reaction of the audience? What do you do? Then you've got to generate it in yourself. It's like doing a video. Nobody's in the room when you do a video either, except the video guy, and he's usually asleep. You have to generate that energy. Another thing that works in my favor is fatigue. Why? Because it helps me to loosen up that trained seal of telling the same story the same way over and over an hour. Fatigue allows me new expressions, deeper thinking. It lets the swell of the subconscious surface and take me over. It lets the story tell itself through me. That is magic. That infects an audience. That is my goal with storytelling, not to do a well-manicured recitation. For me, when the story speaks through me, we are all entranced. <laughs> Absolutely. It's really quite magical when that happens. So on a more general note, what advice do you have for young storytellers who've just started on their journey? Go see lots of people perform every possible way that they do. Talk to people about what you think. Talk about what you just saw. I get storytelling ideas from all sorts of places, and least of all, storytellers. Music helps me. Dance helps me. Poetry helps me. Visual arts of all kinds. I make pictures, too. Be opinionated and express yourself. It'll get things going. Seek excellence in what others do and in your own work. Get better. You can and you will if you work at it. So work at it. Be a better performer. Be a better artist. Well, can't agree more. And the only way to become a better artist is, like you said, to keep at it. Thank you so much, Jeff. Thank you for joining us. 
one can never get enough of Jeff Gear. I'm always amazed by his sheer energy and enthusiasm for all things dramatic. And let me tell you, he's the one storyteller who inspires me to keep the dramatic in me alive. For all those who are looking to taste a generous share of Jeff's storytelling, head over to his YouTube channel where you will find tons of stories that will keep you entertained for hours. Hey, Storywalkers. Listening to all those food stories, stories from the first book from Feast, got me thinking about how I look at stories and storytelling. To me, storytelling is quite like cooking. You know, you don't need to gather your ingredients, mix them up, toss them up, put in the right flavors. You have to sniff it to get the right aromas and how it is delicious. Only when it's delicious and delectable do we serve it to our listeners. So for me, storytelling is like cooking. And to me, to tell a story is to put all the ingredients in the right balance. Now tell me, what about you, Roger? When I talk about food stories, what comes to your head? Yes, people often think of stories as a bedtime activity, but the reason that I called my video introduction to storytelling not just at bedtime is because other times, such as mealtimes, are actually very appropriate. I mean, we're all gathered at the dining table, and so it's a good time to share a story. At breakfast, for example, you know that your child is going to face a particularly challenging test, whether that's academic or on the sports field. And so sharing a story that is about positive thinking or focus, concentration, might be very appropriate, or the values of sportsmanship. And at dinner time, it's often the kind of personal stories about what's happened to you, what people said to you, the people that you've met, what you've learned from your interactions with people during the day that would be well worth sharing, or indeed the family stories, how you connect your current experience with what has gone before. And it's a way that stories can be really useful in helping your family to bond as you are tucking into the food. And the only word of caution that I would give you if you're telling a story at the dinner table, uh, one is not to gesticulate, particularly if you're holding a knife and a fork in your hand because you don't want to poke somebody's eye out, uh, nor do you want with a wild hand to knock over a glass of water or the chilli sauce bottle because that would have most uh, distracting consequences, wouldn't it? Mm. Meher, what about you? My family very often plays this story game called Spinner Tale, particularly at dinner time, wherein one member starts the story with a couple of sentences and we go round robin wherein each one on the table keeps adding to the plot of the story by adding sentences. This exercise gives such splendid wings to all of our imaginations. It also surprises us when the next member adds a twist to the plot that could completely change the course of the story and which the person before did not even imagine. And once the story ends, we discuss what each one of us thought could have been alternate endings. <laughs> Many a times if we want to educate our child about a particular concept, say for example teamwork or perseverance or maybe even following a routine, me and my spouse very intelligently try to add a conflict in the story accordingly. 
Oh, it's lovely to have a story being shared at a meal time. And there's so much that can happen while you're sitting together, sharing a meal and creating a story right then and there. Krupa, what about you? Hmm. Well, in my case, I had a really nice time with my grandmother. Every time she cooked up one of those uh, traditional recipes for festivals because she always had a story to go along with one of her special recipes. And as we cooked them together, it was the bonding time when I got to know about the story. And especially when the food foods were named in Tamil, then it would usually be like a name story of why this food was named this way or why this spinach was named uh, another way. And one of these stories is about a uh, chimbli, which has been one of my favorite stories. It kick-started my career as a storyteller, where she spoke about chimbli, which is a sweet that they make down south in Tamil Nadu. And it's a story about how a sneaky man on the first night of his wedding, on his nuptial night, sneaks in for a bite of sweet. But to know more about the story, you have to tune in to next month's episode where I tell the whole story of the chimbli. Moving on. Ritu, do you have, do you have something to add to this? Yeah, Rituparna, you know, there are lots of family stories around food. Uh, but one of the favorite ones uh, that I till now uh, tell every Sharad Purnima, that's the full moon that marks the beginning of winters. And it's about the kheer or the rice pudding that is made on that night. And as children, we loved hanging the vessel in the open when the moon's rays would enter it and make it cool too. A very refreshing, sweet taste is what we savor the next day, early in the morning. As I grew up and became a teacher, I usually like to take it for, uh, sorry, I usually like to take it for my students too. We discuss the flavor, the sweet taste and the best place in the modern housing to hang the pot of kheer or the rice pudding so that there are no cats who will be savoring it before we do. A lesson in physics too. I think festivals have stories interwoven with them so well. Um, and there are food, of course, in all festivals. So, which is which brings, uh, you know, the idea of food and stories as a very Indian experience, isn't it? We can't think of any Indian festival without its traditional food or dish being prepared. Lovely. Thank you for sharing, Shireen. What about you? Well, I'm actually thinking about not just stories in the home or at meal times. I'm thinking about stories and food connected with different cities and places. I don't know if you guys have experienced this food trail, you know, where you experience a city, its cuisine, and the stories behind some of that, um, you know, interesting uh, specialities that are particular to a city. I've attended some of these food trails, and I'm thinking about how I can do one for where I live now, which is Dubai. So that really excites me. I have a question for you lot. 
I really want to know which one's your favorite food story. I'm sure you have a lot, but I thought we'll just pass around very quickly to find out your favorite food story. I'll start with mine. Mine is Birbal Ki Khichdi. Um, I don't know if you know about this, and this is, uh, this is quite a simple but really fun story from the Akbar Birbal uh, tradition. What about you, um, Meher? My favorite food story happens to be the European folk tale, uh, which is the stone soup, in which uh, these hungry strangers convince the people of the town to, you know, share a small amount of their food in, in order to make a meal which everyone can enjoy. I just love the, uh, the whole story and I love the way uh, I also tell it. Yeah. Mm, what about you, Ritu? Uh, so, Shireen, uh, my favorite story is the heartwarming story from Ramayan. It's the tale about Lord Ram and Shabri's half-eaten bears or jujubes. And finally, let's close with you, Rituparna. What's your? Which one's your favorite? All right. Oh, yeah, I have a favorite food story and it happens to be on my podcast. This one is called the Bamboo Door Curry. Now, bamboo door curry is a very special story. It comes from my home state, Jharkhand. And I have it in, on my post podcast. If you want to go and listen to it, look up Golpo stories from around the world and you will listen to that story there. We hope you're having a satisfying story feast so far. And surely we can't let you go without dessert. So here's a short and sweet fortune cookie tale from Sarawak about a squirrel and a forest gecko who learn to share. Unlike the old couple in the Laddu story who don't. This Penang folk tale is retold by the one and only Margaret Reed MacDonald, who is quite an authority on folklore. That's right. Dr. MacDonald has authored 67 books on folklore and storytelling. And she's my go-to person for anything to do with the craft. When I began my journey as a storyteller, it was her book, The Storyteller's Startup Book, that became my Bible. Her books are not readily available in India, so I picked them up when I traveled to the US. Squirrel and forest gecko decided to go into the forest and hunt and fish. They walked a long way into the forest and they made a little camp. And the next day, Squirrel went into the forest hunting for wild boar. And Forest Gecko went upstream fishing. Well, that night, Forest Gecko came back with a lot of fish. And Squirrel didn't have anything at all. Oh my, said Squirrel, what luck you had, what luck. Luck, said Forest Gecko, wasn't luck at all. I worked really hard for these fish. I walked up the stream a long way. I shook a tree with flowers, and the flowers fell in the water, and the fish came up to feed on them, and I caught the fish. Hmm. It was a lot of work. Oh, well, that's true, said Squirrel. Um, would you give me uh, uh, some of your fish to eat, please? Maybe a, a, a fin of your fish? No, can't give you a fin of my fish. How would it swim without fins? Caught it myself, and I'll eat it myself. Oh, well, could you give me maybe just just uh, the tail of your fish? Oh, can't give you the tail. It couldn't somebody else's tail either. Keep in mind, I made it, caught it myself. I'm going to eat it myself, huh? And that was that. 
school the next day, they went out again, and this time the squirrel had good luck, and the squirrel came back with a wild boar. Oh my, what luck you had, said Forrest Gecko. Luck? Wasn't any luck at all, it was hard work, said Squirrel. I walked a long way, and I shot this boar and lugged it back here. Oh, well, that's true, said Forrest Gecko. Um, could you give me maybe um, um, a foot of your, your, your boar to eat tonight? No, how could it run without its legs? Can't give you its foot? No way. Caught myself, I'll eat it myself. Well, maybe just give me an ear. How could it hear without its ear? Can't give you an ear either. Caught it myself, I'll eat it myself, huh? And that was that. Well, the next day the animals, they dried all their meat and their fish and they packed it up and, and they took it home the next day. And the wife saw them coming. They ran out. Oh, let's see what our husband's got. But when they came close, they saw that fit, that uh, Forrest Gecko had nothing but fish and Squirrel had nothing but boar. What? Didn't you share the food you caught? No way, said Forrest Gecko. Caught it myself, I'll eat it myself. No way, said Squirrel. I caught it myself, I'll eat it myself. Forrest Gecko's wife took her big wooden comb and whopped him on the back. Well, that'll teach you that you should share when you have food, she said. And Squirrel's wife took her big wooden spoon and whopped him on top of the head. Well, that'll teach you you need to share when you have food, she said. Then the wives took the fish and the meat and they shared it out among each other and took it home. But to this day, Squirrel still has a white mark on top of his head where his wife popped him with the spoon, and Forrest Gecko still has stripes on his back where his wife hit him with the cone. And when the Penan people see that, they remember that every good person needs to share with other people what they have. Wasn't that such a fun tale, Rituparna? And funny how it's always the wives who knock some sense into their husbands. <laughs> so that's it, folks. We hope you've had a pleasurable and inspiring listening experience. Do write in with your feedback and questions. And oh, don't forget to catch our next episode of Storywalk out in September, where we'll be taking you behind the scenes of Feast Fest, our international online storytelling festival in October. Oh yes, Shireen. Our hands and hearts are full of stories right now. Feast Fest will be Asia's biggest storytelling bonanza. 168 tellers from 23 countries assemble to tell stories in 24 languages. Tickets are open for purchase. Book yours now. Mm, much to look forward to. For now, this is Shireen Saif. And Ritu Parnagosh signing off. <laughs> <laughs>